All right. A Psalm of David. O Lord, oppose those who oppose me. Fight those who fight against me. Put on your armor and take up your shield. Prepare for battle and come to my aid. Lift up your spear and javelin against those who pursue me. Let me hear you say I will give you victory. Bring shame and disgrace on those who try to kill me. Turn them back and humiliate those who want to harm me. Blow them away like chaff in the wind, a wind sent by the angel of the Lord. Make their path dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. I did them no harm, but they laid a trap for me. So let sudden ruin come upon them. Let them be caught in the trap they set for me. Let them be destroyed in the pit they dug for me. Then I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad because he rescues me. With every bone in my body I will praise him. Lord, you, who can compare with you? Who else rescues the helpless from the strong? Who else protects the helpless and the poor from those who rob them? Malicious witnesses testify against me. They accuse me of crimes I know nothing about. They repay me evil for good. I'm sick with despair. Yet when they were ill, I grieved for them. I denied myself by fasting for them. But my prayers returned unanswered. I was sad as though they were for friends or family, as if, they were grie- as if I were grieving for my own mother. But they are glad now that I am in trouble. They gleefully join together against me. I am attacked by people I don't even know. They slander me constantly. They mock me and call me names. They snarl at me. How long, O Lord, will you look on and do nothing? Rescue me from their fierce attacks. Protect my life from those lions. Then I will thank you in front of the great assembly. I will praise you before all the people. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This is a pretty representative sample um, of what we call an imprecatory psalm, or a cursing psalm, you might call them. The psalm, uh, this song is classified a lament. There are 50 lament psalms. Some say more. But this one's classified as that. Uh, and incidentally, most lament psalms have a how in them. How long? Uh, actually, the, the book of Lamentations, the book of Lament, uh, in, the, uh, in the Jewish Bible, um, the name of, of that book is Eka. The book of Eka, which in Hebrew means how. The book of how. And they think that it comes from the first line of that book, which is how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who is great among the nations. Uh, Eka is the Hebrew word for how. Um, and I think most laments have an Eka. I think most laments are full of our Ekas, if you will. How could this have happened How could God let this be? How long will it be like this? How much more is going to pile on? How, God, how? Um, Most laments are are an acre. This is kind of a side note. Um, But something that jumped at me this week I kind of wanted to pull out is uh, this how question has, has become something that God doubters or people who, who uh, want to challenge our faith, come at us with. If your God is so good, how does he let evil happen? How blah, blah, blah. And what's ironic is this is actually kind of a point of apologetics now. You have to be ready to answer this question. If, you, if you're not ready to answer the question, you know, how does God let evil happen? You can't really do apologetics because that will always come at you. But what's interesting to me is throughout the entire Bible, it's not the atheist asking that question. It's the believers. The biggest heroes in the Bible are the ones who are going to God and saying, God, how could you let this happen? How long are you going to stay away? And how, 
how is this going? So this, these how questions, these ekas are not um, ungodly questions to ask these questions. I think we would do better if instead of trying to answer everybody else's ekas, if we would join the chorus and, and we feel like it's our job to defend God against all the ekas of the world. Like, you know, well, you got to understand God sometimes does this and God, well, you got to understand God. Yeah. And I think that the, the people of God in the Bible were the ones who went to God and said, God, how long are you going to stay back and let this happen? And, and so I think we need to be blistering heaven with our achas. Um, how long, Lord, will you look on and do nothing? David says in Psalm 35. Um, and in the process of pouring out this acha, David reveals two great realities that I want to draw out tonight. Uh, and the first is the nature of injustice. Spoiler, spoiler alert, David um, does become king uh, after this epic. And then after a while, he goes on a second exile. He's, his kingdom is actually overthrown by his son, and he has to run for his life again. Um, and there's a single attribute that kind of separates the Psalms from the first exile and the Psalms from the second exile, and that's the idea of injustice. There's a major difference there. The laments that David writes in his second exile are very similar, almost identical um, to the Psalms he writes in his first, except in the first he's constantly talking about his own innocence. And in the second, he's kind of had a moral failure by that time. He kind of knows um, his own moral weakness. He no longer calls on on injustice um, in the second exile. You see some growth. In fact, there's a great picture of it. Um, in two psalms. This is Psalms 26, written in the first exile. Put me on trial, Lord, and cross-examine me. Test my motives and my heart. Then in the second exile, he writes this. Don't put your servant on trial, for no one is innocent before you. You can kind of see his growth and how much he changes as a human being between the two exiles. In the first one, he's consumed with his own innocence, and later he kind of figures out that he's actually not as innocent as he thought he was. We might be tempted to kind of hone in on mature David and say, you know, um, that's the David we want to talk to, the one who's kind of come to grips with his sin. But, um, but tonight I want to focus on uh, David's confessed innocence in this epic um, and what it might reveal to us about the nature of injustice. Um, the first thing that we need to understand about injustice from the Psalms uh, is Jews understood divine judgment very differently than we do as kind of New Testament believers. Maybe the easiest way to think about it is we as Christians kind of tend to think of judgment um, like it's a, a, a capital case and we're the defendant. Like we don't want the judgment of God. We're, we're crying for mercy because we don't want to be found guilty. It's, it's kind of a capital punishment type scenario. And we see judgment as the thing we're trying hard to escape. We're the defendant trying hard to escape justice trying hard to escape judgment. The Jews saw it totally differently. They saw it more like a civil case than themselves as the plaintiff, hoping for a big payout, if they could just get their case heard. They, they tend to see judgment as a positive thing, as, as they cried out for God to come and give judgment. This is something we don't have to deal with a lot. Our, I believe our justice system is actually moving in the wrong direction, where you almost have to have money just to access it. But the big thing in the Bible was... was just getting a judge to hear you. I mean, that was the first thing God provided were judges, like someone to come and judge between the people. I mean, uh, when David does get his kingdom overthrown, 
the way his son does it was he stands at the gate and every time somebody would come in to get a case heard, he would go, oh, the king's not in today, but boy, man, if I were a king, I would listen to all these cases. I would, I would really give judgment to the people. And just by promising that, just by promising to hear their cases, he won the hearts of the people against his father David. So in the Old Testament, judgment is something desirable. It's a good thing. And uh, so the Psalms will say things like, um, Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for, they, for you shall judge the people. Um, so they're, they're seeing it as a positive thing that God would come and judge. Arise, O God, this is Psalms 82, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Psalms 94, Rise up, O judge of the earth, and render punishment. So the Jews saw judgment as something to be sought after. And so when David uh, cries out for justice in this epic, he is he's seeing justice as not necessarily something that happens between man and God. We, t- we tend to focus so hard on the judgment being something that happens between us and God, and we want to escape judgment. David saw it as being between man and man, and they want God to come in and and judge that situation. Justice happens on the horizontal level to a Jew. In Psalms 35 that we read tonight, David is laying out a case between himself and his enemies. And he's asking God to come and judge. To come and render justice. And this is a super hot distinction in church history and in the church today. Because we can have a tendency as Jesus followers to get so consumed with the grand picture of justice. Like the justice between humanity and God. Um, so we'll tend to feel like we're all guilty and we all have to cry out for mercy and we, so we all pray for you know, God not to judge us. And then we can forget, if we get too caught up in that, that injustice between people still happens and that, there, you know, that we still have to be, even though yeah, maybe the epic narrative arc of the Scripture is between humanity and God, But if we get too focused on that, we'll forget that we still need justice on the earthly level. Injustice still happens all the time. Um, We have this pattern to follow on how to deal with injustice with our achas. How long will you let this happen, Lord? How long will you look on and do nothing? Um, How did things get this broken? So I, I, I think right now we've got this going on. I don't care if it's Black Lives Matter or Me Too or the abortion argument. We've, we've got this, uh, if you pick whatever brokenness you want, but I think if we would learn to lament and pound heaven with our achas instead of pounding on each other on Facebook, we would be a lot, a lot healthier for it. But the one thing that David's epic reminds us is that in any given situation, there is a right and a wrong completely separate from righteousness that that we tend to get so caught up in righteousness that we forget right and wrong. And this can actually be one of the hardest things when you read the Psalms because a New Testament believer can be so convinced that there's none righteous, no, not one, that it hits us weird when David declares himself completely righteous. And so we're like, that's, no, there's none righteous, no, not one. How can he say he's righteous? I am completely righteous. Lord, search my heart. There's no evil thing in me. And we'll kind of forget that David is not talking epic righteousness like we are. He's talking about, in this situation, I've done nothing wrong. And when you read a situation with Saul, he had done nothing to ask for this. Like All he had ever done was everything Saul had ever asked him to do. And because the women sang to him, it made Saul jealous and everything turned on him. This was out of his control. And so he, he's not saying, I am a righteous individual. I am perfectly righteous. I've never sinned. He's just saying, 
God, in this situation, I am right. So one of the best ways to think of it is maybe that a completely unrighteous person can still suffer injustice. That justice and righteousness are two so totally separate things, you know, on an earthly level. That, that when David cries out about his righteousness, he's not saying he's sinless. He's saying, I am experiencing injustice. And we have to remember that as a church, that there are plenty of unrighteous people who are experiencing injustice. And it's still our job to try to help bring justice. Um, so the first thing about David's angry psalms um, is that he sees justice as something that happens um, between people and needs to be overseen by God. Um, the second thing is, so we've got the nature of injustice is the nature of anger. Angle. Anger. I want to I look at it from two angles. I look down and saw the word angle. Uh, I want to look at it from two angles. First, the Psalms is like a mirror. And not just any mirror, one of those like really honest mirrors. Anybody ever stood in front of like a really honest mirror and you're like, ooh. Like I don't spend a lot of time in front of mirrors. And being one of those people who can put on weight really fast and sometimes sometimes lose it not quite as fast, but um, I can go like six months and feel like I'm still the same weight I was six months ago. I'm still moving around fine. All of a sudden, I'll catch an angle in the mirror and I'll be like, oh my God, I'm huge. Like, and have no clue. I've been like clueless that I was putting on weight. I don't get on the scale often. And, and uh, so the Psalms are kind of like one of those mirrors. Um, if we read them honestly, we find what anger really looks like. Like a lot of times our anger can feel um, righteous, like we're supposed to be angry about this. And, and every once in a while we'll read the Psalms and we'll see what it looks like when somebody else is that way. And it kind of reveals to us what our anger, angles look, anger looks like. So look at David. Lift up your spear against them. Bring shame and disgrace on them. Humiliate them. Anybody ever pray that about someone else? God, please humiliate them. <laughs> blow them away like chaff make their path dark and slippery let sudden ruin come upon them let them be destroyed in their own pit we can read these things and tend to feel completely detached from them feeling that it's inappropriate to pray that over someone else inappropriate to pray that someone else would come to harm we're supposed to pray good for them um, in fact my one of my older sons had this habit of when he would pray for food, he would go, God, please kill all the bad guys and bless all the good guys and bless this food to our bodies. That was like his nightly prayer. Kill all the bad guys, bless all the good guys, and uh, we were consumed with good guys and bad guys. And then as we started talking about like the nature of good and bad, he was getting conflicted, and so he would go, um, God, catch all the bad guys and bless all the good guys and bless this food. And then that grew to stop all the bad guys. It, it morphed a little bit. And finally he goes, God, Turn all the bad guys to good guys, and then bless the good guys and bless his food. And so that was that was kind of the conclusion of the whole thing that he would turn all the bad guys to good guys, and then bless the good guys. Um, but we're uncomfortable praying that God would do harm to people. Uh, we look at these Psalms of David's, and and we don't see ourselves in them. But then we go on Facebook, and we post articles or memes motivated to. To hurt, motivated to, you know, or we read something and it gets our blood boiling and we comment, you know, and, and we want the comment to stab. We're not comfortable taking it to God and asking him to judge, but we'll jump in and do it ourselves. 
a little bit. We read posts that offend us and we post these scathing responses motivated by this deep frustration that won't be silent. And the one place we never go is God. We never dream of closing Facebook and going, God cause as much destruction as the people putting out that garbage as you can. You know, instead we feel like we'll take care of it. We never say lift up your spear against them, bring them shame and disgrace, humiliate them. But I mean, let's be honest, when we engage on Facebook, that's what we're hoping for, right? We're hoping we'll have that perfectly worded response that humiliates them, that brings them disgrace, that they'll be so shamed by what we say that will make them look bad, that they'll, they'll change their argument. Bring them shame and disgrace. Humiliate them. So why not take honest emotions to God? Anger is one of the toughest emotions we deal with because you've got Jesus saying in Matthew 5.22, but I say if you even get angry with someone, you're, uh, you may be subject to judgment. Like anger is this thing you want to avoid at all costs. And then he overturns tables and clears the temple. And Paul jumps in and says, be angry, but do not sin. As if the emotion's okay, but not actions that come with it. And it gets confusing. But I would like to submit that as barbaric as David sometimes sounds in the Psalms, maybe taking our anger to God honestly and giving it full voice, no matter how ugly or hateful it sounds, is a better way to handle it. Anger is a divine emotion. In fact, it's a truly appropriate response to injustice. We talked last week about C.S. Lewis listening, overhearing those guys on the train who were fully convinced that the British government was just making up stuff about Hitler to pump up their own troops. And Lewis was said the only approach, to, like the only proper response should have been indignation. Like if they really believed their government would do that, they should have been furious with their government. And that's when he realized that Anger is the proper response sometimes. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of verses about God getting angry. God's anger pouring out. And so even though ours is colored by our sinfulness, I think we need to have anger. I don't, I don't think anger is evil. It needs a voice. And I think David offers a healthy way to process it. And trust me, God is not Amazon. You can't just pick your curse click a button and he's going to send it to somebody. You know, you just pick your curse, pick an address and God will make sure that the curse gets it. God knows when you're processing your anger. If you're like pouring out what you feel, God, just bring judgment on them, humiliate them. God's not going to go, well, I guess there's nothing I can do. I have to now judge this person. Jennifer asked for it. You know, God is obviously very wise. He lets us process our honest pain. You know, so so when we... When we pray imprecatory psalms, when we pray curses on people, we're not cursing them. We're not, you know, God isn't going to automatically do harm to them. It's just letting our hearts be honest with what we're feeling to God. Um, But there's another way that psalms teach us about anger, because the psalms aren't just a mirror, they're a window. They don't just show us what's in our own heart, they show us what's in the heart of people. And I don't have time to spend a lot of time on this, but... Um, if you want to know how your actions impact a human soul, read the imprecatory Psalms. If you want to know what injustice does to a human, what they feel when you treat them poorly, read the imprecatory Psalms. This, this, this bile that David spills out, when we reinforce systems that oppress people, we're creating people who are crying out like this. That pain and that that hurt that we can read in these psalms 
is what happens in the human heart when you treat somebody unjustly. Um, I mean, a lot of times Esther and I were talking. Um, this has been a good reminder for us, even with our kids, because our kids will come to us and, you know, furious that one of their brothers took their toy or whatever, you know, and they've got this this sense of injustice. I had it and he took it. And we're like, if you guys don't get along, I'm taking all the toys. You know, that's, we'll just, we'll just respond that way. That's it. No more toys. If you can't get along. Uh, and, and yet that child very likely was wrong. He was very likely minding his own business. Somebody took a toy. And if we don't respond to that injustice, we create this kind of pain. We can see the kind of pain that that, that unanswered injustice creates. When we read the imprecatory Psalms, they, they reveal to us what the human heart looks like when it's wounded. Because pain's one of those funny things. I, I know almost everybody knows now I burnt the heck out of my leg, you know, a month ago. You know, blistered, terrible, you know. I can't remember what it felt like now. Like, I know it was bad. I know it hurt. But pain goes away. Last night I stubbed my toe. I thought I was going to die. Like, I, you know... I made it through burning half my body, but stubbed my toe. I was done. I was, just take me home, God. I don't want to live anymore. This is too much pain. This is too much pain for me. I can't do it. Whatever pain we're feeling in the moment is all the pain there is to feel. Like, pain is, like, we don't have, in the moment, you don't have a, wow, this really, really hurts, um, but it's not as bad as I felt that one time. We don't do that. Whatever pain we're feeling right now is all the pain, and we need to learn how to express that and, and, uh, and process that because, uh, and you can't, you know, when your kids come up and they're, you know, they just went through a breakup and they're heartbroken, you can't go, oh, you should try providing for a family. You don't even know pain yet. You know, you should try my life on for two seconds. You'll know pain. Like, that doesn't help. What they're feeling in that moment is very real. As far as they know, that is all the pain there is to possibly feel. Their heart is truly broken, and we have to respond to that hurt, you know, and, and give it, teach them to give it a voice or they turn into these psalms. They turn into this boiling, you know, lava that David's showing us. So the injustice that David processes is earthly injustice between people. And he processes that anger um, in his art to God. Um, but this brings us to the last and touchiest lesson about David's cursing psalms. And that is the nature of an enemy. And this is a tough one. I've read through David's story a couple dozen times over the past couple months. And I don't see anywhere in the Bible where David ever has trouble with the Philistines or the Edomites or the Jebusites or the Hittites or the Cellulites or any of the other ones. David is, as far as I can tell, all he does with them is conquer them. Like, every time he goes to battle, he's, he's uh, victorious. We never see him, like, curled up, pinned down by the Philistines, crying out to God for help. As far as I can tell, the only thing the Bible records is him crushing those guys. He even lives with the Philistines for a while. And the Philistine king tells him, you were like an angel of the Lord to me. Like the Philistine king loved him. Um, But he never really has any trouble with what we would classify as enemies. From what I can tell, um, the people David had trouble with were the people that he loved. David's enemies were the people he truly loved. Let's look back at tonight's psalm because I think it shows it well. I'm sick with despair, yet when they were ill, I grieved for them. I denied myself by fasting for them. My prayers remained unanswered. I was sad as though they were my friend and family, as if I was grieving for my own mother. 
But they're glad now that I'm in trouble. They gleefully join together against me. This is one of the weirdest parts about reading about David's life. Saul tries to kill David in cold blood several times. David has to run from him for years just to survive. But when Saul dies, David mourns and fasts and declares a day of fasting um, out of grief for Saul's death. He even, the guy who came and, and said that he was the one who killed Saul, he wasn't, but he wanted credit for it. So he came and bragged that he killed Saul. David had him uh, murdered, had him killed, executed. David was completely broken that Saul died, even though he spent his whole life running from him. When David's son rebels uh, and steals his kingdom and then sleeps with all of his concubines as this like gross symbol that he's fully and completely taken his father's kingdom from him. And when they have to meet in battle and Absalom dies, David mourns so hard that his general Joab has to rebuke him because the troops were, were confused. They were starting to question David's loyalty. They were like, we just fought for you and you're acting like we lost. Like Joab came to him and was like, if you don't straighten up, you're going to lose the men because they're confused as to what's going on here because you're weeping and bawling and won't be consoled over the death of the person you just sent them to fight. Like Abner, Saul's general, who had personally tried to kill David several times and who had met David in battle. So when Abner dies, just this general, David puts on sackcloth and declares a day of mourning uh, for Abner. The most honest part of David's angry psalms and the hardest part to come to grips with is the fact that David writes this stuff about the people that he loves. These aren't what we would consider enemies. And how do we respond to that? How in the world do we respond to that? Years ago, David's psalms helped me to understand my wife. We would she, I tend to wear my emotions on my sleeve. You pretty much always know what I'm feeling. So we would be in these fights, like a real, you know, scream and shout, you know, fight. And she'd be yelling at me with all this boiling rage in her voice and the phone would ring. And she would go, hello. And I'd be like, what, what was that? Like if I answer the phone at the moment, I'm like, what? You know, like I, I can't hide it. You know, whatever I'm feeling is just right on the surface. And I used to be like, you are so fake. How did you, you know, and so I thought she was fake for years in the imprecatory Psalms. Tell me she's not fake. She's complex. She can both feel anger and courtesy at the same time. She can, she can say, yes, I'm still very angry, but that's not courteous to yell at somebody on the phone. So I'm going to be courteous. I can, I can actually access both of those at once. Just like David can access both love and this kind of anger at once. The reality is we get frustrated with those darn Democrats. We get really exasperated with those darn Republicans. The people on Facebook whose opinions get us all riled up. But if we're truly honest, the people who really hurt us deep enough to provoke real anger are the people we're closest to. Honestly, most of the anger we feel toward generic groups of people isn't even worth processing. I mean, we know it. We, we know it on social media. We'll read something that just infuriates. Infu- I never can say that word. It really, really makes us angry. I'm going to Elma Fudd it. We'll read one of those posts that really, really makes us angry. And we're like, ugh! And then we're like, oh, that's a cute puppy. We, just, we scroll, our thumb twitches, and we forgot about it. It's gone. Like, our anger is only about that deep over those generic things. 
most of that's not even worth dealing with. But the pain that our loved ones cause us is poison if we hold on to it. It can eat us alive. I said at the beginning of this message that one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is how human they are, where there's nothing more honestly human than being truly and, ang- and passionately angry at someone you love. We pretend that David is practically bipolar for fighting Saul and fighting Abner and fighting Absalom and then mourning their death. Like there's, like he can't get his emotions, can't figure out what he feels, but we are no different. We passionately declare, have you guys ever like had one of those truly like deep loving emotional days with your spouse where you're just completely connected and everything's clicking and you just can't believe how much you love them and how great everything is. And then the next day you just want to kill them. Like you just, you can't stop fighting and you're like, how did it get, how did 24 hours make that big of a difference? Everybody's shaking like, no, like we know that's never happened. I guess it's me. I guess it's just me. No, but like, it's amazing how we can have these deep and emotional feelings of love and then the next day we can't stop screaming at that person. And they just, they're just make, our, make us boil with anger. When we read the imprecatory Psalms and we're trying to come to grips with an enemy that we hate enough to say these kind of things, we have a tendency to, to try to stay too generic. We'll say, well, Satan's our only true enemy. So you say those cursing things towards Satan. Like, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So we just throw all those at this vague, you know, but people we have to love. Or we'll aim it at atheists or Muslims or a political party or something. And that doesn't do our heart any good at all. We have to own the fact that the people who love us hurt us. The people we would die for, (laughs) we sometimes want to kill. Some of us were given a bad hand by our parents. They didn't do right by us, but we love them and we want to honor them and show them respect. And so we just swallow that injustice and the anger it causes us. I don't think that's healthy. I think we have to have a way to voice that and go, I, you know, I was handed a bad hand. And, it, and I don't know, like, my life's a mess. And I, don't know, I don't know who to blame it at, but it's not right. It shouldn't have happened. Some of us have been abused by people close to us. We have these conflicting feelings of pain and love. We don't know what to do with them. Some of us have years of small offenses in our marriages. And we know we have a deep and abiding love for our spouse, but those small offenses have built up into bitterness. We don't know what to do with it. We just keep swallowing the anger. And for all of this, the Psalms of David stand as this beautiful example of how to take the pain and frustration we feel toward the people we love the most to God and be honest with it and lean into it. We talked last week about the truth that our hearts know and the truth that our guts know. And that's what makes a lament a lament is that we know God is for us. We know He loves us. We know that He's good. 
And yet at the same time, the evidence in our life isn't fitting that. And so it's the distance between those two that fuels the lament. And nowhere is this more real than than in the imprecatory Psalms. David begs God to smite people that later die and he mourns their death. Like it breaks his heart. That, and, and so did he want them smitten or did he want them alive? And the answer is yes. I mean, yes, if he's honest with his heart, no, he didn't want them, God to smite them. But if he's honest with his guts in that moment, what he's feeling in that moment as he's running for, for his life, there's a psalm that David writes when he's pinned down in a house and Saul had found out where he was and luckily his wife, Michal, had woken him up and said, hey, you know, they're here and he was able to escape and he writes a psalm right afterwards, like furious and angry that he can't sit down for two seconds without somebody trying to kill him. Yeah, and in that moment, he absolutely wants God to smite. And had God answered his prayer and said, okay, you said so, and bolt of lightning, David would have mourned. He would have been crushed. But that's what it means to be human. The Psalms, especially the cursing Psalms, are honest about the messiness of being human. Saying Satan is the only real enemy may be true, but it doesn't help our hearts. Saying that we're all sinful and we all do wrong, so we're all worthy of judgment, so there is no real injustice because we all deserve hell might be true but it does our hearts no good at all our anger needs a voice and I believe God is listening